We now take you to a special breaking news event happening at E3. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Thank you so much for for having us here at E3. What an honor, what a thrill it is uh, to be with you all in this room today. Who are you guys? Yes, thank you very much. Yes, thank you, thank you for your for your support. We're like I said, thrilled. Um, at at Nerdonomy, we've always felt like we want to share the word of nerd with the masses, and we thought, well, how can we do that better? We need to step up our game. We really wanted to show our fans what it's like to be a part of the podcasting team at Nerdonomy. So we, today, we are happy to announce Nerdonomy, the game. Please, please, please hold hold your applause uh, until until the end. Thank you, thank thank you. Uh, we're hoping to launch sometime in fall of 2015, and when we do, you'll be in for an experience you've never had before. We're we're, we're shooting to launch on uh, a few different consoles. I will have more about that uh, late, later in the uh, in the presentation here. Yeah. Uh, but before we do that, we want to give you an opportunity to actually see some gameplay in action. So Brian has a <coughs> controller here. Absolutely. You are now a member of the podcasting team. So as you see, as I walk into the studio, you find as you get to your recording session, oh, the table is covered with water bottles and day-old pizza. So you, before you can get to recording, you must have to clean up all of this crap. And there's a couple ways you can do that. Simply by pressing A, you can pick up one item. Or if you do A left arrow, A left arrow, A left arrow, you can go and pick them up in one gesture. That's right. Uh, now, once you've disposed of the table, of course, it's time to set up the mics, which is critical for the recording phase later in this level. Uh, and as Brian's par- character approaches the table, you can see, uh-oh, all the mics are unplugged. How did that happen? We don't know. But it's Brian's responsibility, of course, to uh, fix that. Absolutely. And Eric, this is a complicated one, so could you walk them through what I'm doing with the controller? Yeah, exactly. So you'll notice that Brian is approaching each of the mics, and he's hitting A. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Keep going, Brian. Yep. All right. And he's now hit A for all four mics, and my God, was that an experience. Whew. Well done, Brian. Well done. That was, that was a complicated one. Good job. So now that Brian has set up the mics, you'll notice his avatar has now sat down in the chair, and uh, you'll notice the stress meter above his head is pretty high, and that's because, if we see on the left here, the expected wait time for both Eric and Sarah to arrive is still 20 minutes out. Now, folks, of course, this is all in real time. So we will speed this next part up a little bit for you. But Brian can do a few things to help bring that stress meter down. What, what kind of things can Brian do? You can do a couple different things. You can choose your actions by clicking up the, the X button, and that calls up uh, your menu of, of choices. And you can see, clearly you can review your notes. Uh, you can read a comic book, mm-hmm. right? Or if you're playing the Brian character, you can sing show tunes. Fantastic. Let's do that, because that stress meter is getting a little too high. Okay, so we're going to do that. I dreamed a dream of time gone by. And enough of that, so we can just go ahead and fast forward a little bit, uh, further progressing into the game. You'll notice everyone has arrived, the recording has finished, but uh-oh, the audio was distorted. What happens then, Brian? You invoke the wrath of Sean Kong, ladies and gentlemen. Oh no, here he comes. As you can see, there is a... Uh, lava pit that's opening up from the floor and Sean is coming out directly from Colorado and as you can see he's chasing my avatar around the room. So Brian is in quite a pickle ladies and gentlemen now he can jump on the table, he can uh, jump on the chairs and try to avoid Using the A and B buttons, absolutely. But there is a special code that he can do that really puts a special Absolutely, if you go up, up, down, down, left, left right, right, B, A, green button, red button, blue button, yellow button in that exact order, you can kick Sean Kong in the balls. And there you go folks. And there you go, guys. There's Nerdonomy the game. What yeah. do you think? Who are you? Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. And I'm Eric Brickmont. And Sarah's not feeling well. So she's not here. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah, Sarah had to deal with some tummy problems. So we. She's got a bad tummy. So she wished she could be here, but sadly, the the Sarah expansion pack uh, could not be uh, gotten out in time. Yeah. To be released with this it's a episode. Yeah. Yeah. She was but, gonna be. She was gonna be launch day content. 
uh, but just couldn't yeah. couldn't happen. But worry not, nerds. She'll be back in the next couple episodes, and we'll be back to the way things were. So, how are you, by the way? I'm I'm good. I'm very good. I am, as always, tired. But that that's okay. Yeah. That's that's the I well, exist in a kids, state of tiredness. Right. That's right. Yep. All the kids, all the work, all the observatory, all the observatory going on right now. Yeah. Um. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, as the nerds know, um, I uh, left my day job to pursue acting and just got the word today. I just booked a job. I can't actually talk about it yet. Um, so by the time this episode releases, it will not be within the, the gag fact, order. I, I had to actually sign an NDA yeah. um, before so, doing the episode. This is not an NDA. This is more just a, 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 a common courtesy agreement to not uh, spoil the fun. Rest assured, I will announce it when it's announced. It's a small thing, but it's a, it's a professional credit, and I'm super excited about it. So. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, well, you know what else just happened recently? E3. That's right. <laughs> the Electronic Expo, as it used to be known. It's just E3 now. And that is, of course, the the biggest, I, I would say probably the biggest of all the video game oh, conferences. Absolutely. I mean, they... this, is, this is Tokyo Game Show, obviously. Right. Um, and, uh, what's the one that they do in Germany every year? I can never remember the name of it. Uh, but in the U S this yeah. is the biggest one. This, this is, is where all thing. the gaming companies pull out all the stops. They do these massive booths where you can go and sample the games they're going to be coming out with in the next year. And there's some pretty big titles announced. They've got, uh, Star yeah. Wars Battlefront, which I'm particularly excited about. So it's essentially a first person shooter and flight simulator in the Star Wars universe. And it's kind of like a, a updated console version and PC version for the old school Right, because it was originally released on Xbox and PlayStation. Right, back in the day when it was totally awesome, and now it looks to still be pretty awesome. Uh, And the one I think I'm most excited about is uh, Fallout 4. I love Fallout. I think Fallout's so cool. The whole concept behind it is this reimagined future where we go back to kind of a 1950s style. Right, so it's future technology, but everything's set in the, it's very in like the themes of the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, and and then there's this nuclear war that, of course, results in the devastation of humanity. And then you're 300 years later, you walk out of this this underground chasm where you've been living as a you know secluded society, and all of a sudden now you have to face these realities and and deal with you know nastiness. But it's all very tongue in cheek, and it's all super clever, and it's very very uh, funny. The dialogue is pretty amazing, so I am excited about that. Uh, and that's uh, that's coming out in the fall, along with, of course, as we announced earlier, Nerdonomy, the video game, which is going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah, I mean, that's kind of a double entendre, isn't it? It's a little bit of an inside joke of what it is like to actually be. That's kind of exactly how our recordings normally go. Yeah, including including Sean Con, <laughs> Sean Con exactly. with the barrels and everything. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, and um, and I, th- I think that really got us wondering, right? Because we. We, we talked about the history of computers. We did. Well, you guys talked about it. I actually wasn't on that episode. That's true. It was back in the day when, when Kevin and I were doing the episode. Yes, that's right. Kevin filled in uh, while I was lamizing. Um, and when you were lamiserable. Or lamiserating, I think is what yeah. we said it was what it was. Uh, anyway, uh, so, but we thought, well, in light of that, why don't we talk about video games? Because we haven't really, yes, there's obviously, there's an obvious connection between computers and video games because video game consoles are computers. They yeah. just, they're just a very different specialized form of computer. But it's so much deeper than that. Way more deeper than that. Because really what you're talking about is the first form of interactive entertainment, right? Other than, I mean, yes, you could argue theater is interactive, and it is. But this is where you actually have a vested interest in the outcome of whatever entertainment you're taking part in, right? right. You could win or lose a game. So in that aspect of it, it is taking computer technology and making it interactive. And that... Today, I mean, today is commonplace because everyone's got a mobile phone and can play games however they want. But Right. And, and ultimately, what it does is it marries the excitement and fun uh, and processes of mechanical arcade games, right, that started with the penny arcades back in the day. Right. Like in our area, the famous Sutro Baths up in San Francisco uh, and many other penny arcades and Nickelodeons all around the, the country. All around the country. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if you guys want to see what a turn-of-the-century uh, Penny Arcade looks like, you have to turn no further than the happiest place on Earth, right? Disneyland, right? Because if you go to Main Street, USA, you can see an old school Penny Arcade. Uh, to a degree. It's not, it's not, doesn't have all the games like it used to have, because, you know, there were like, the big one was pinball, right? Some places may have had more like of a Carnival Midway kind of thing where you'd have skee-ball and stuff, but also simple things like um, 
you know, slideshows that you put a, a penny into yeah. and you could see that, you know. We talked about the earlier forms of the cinematograph, right, where you could you could see like a was essentially a flip book that was that was me- mechanized, right? But we really when we're talking about video games, we actually fast forward quite a bit, right? We don't when we get past because that was the turn of the century, we we get to what the nineteen forties really when we see the foundations of modern computers. Exactly. And that was post World War Two, where a lot of that work was being done. And and with it came some of the very first attempts at programming, right? That kind of married these, you know, not quite digital computers yet. Everything was still analog, right? So analog and mechanical components. But the the concepts around games and programming games begins at that time. Mm-hmm. And and that really takes, you know, flight in the 1950s more so than the 1940s, where there was a couple of experiments programming games like chess and checkers and things like that. Right. Uh, and but, these, but, were all, these were all based out of, like you said, the, the, the designs for ENIAC and the Turing machine right. from World War II, basically. I, I, exactly. And none of these had a digital display hooked up to it, right? Right. So there was no way to, to realize it on a screen in front of you until a little bit later. But the foundations of it was all there. And a lot of it was going on in the United Kingdom. A lot of it was going on here in the United States. Uh, practically none of it was going on in Japan because Japan was still coming out of the Second World War, even though later Japan would really propel itself forward in the video game world. Yeah. And it would be because of that post-World War II, you know, Cold War atomic age that Japan really took a liking and love to technology and, and, and made that such a huge part of its culture. All the effects that are being felt from this this period in time. Sure. But when you're talking about pressing the button, right? When you use that phrase back yeah. in the 1950s, sure. what did that mean? Well, <laughs> why don't you tell us? Well, I mean, things are going to blow up. Yeah, exactly. It means you're detonating the nuclear bomb, right. right? And it's so funny to just see 20 years later what pressing the button... Pressing the button would means you, to. you make a move in tennis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Literally. Exactly. Literally. And I mean, that's the cool part, right? Because as we get into the 60s, early 60s, you start to notice that, well, computers are programmable. And not just that, but that you're, there, people are learning programming in colleges now. Yeah. And as these guys who, as, and yes, these are mostly men, sadly, um, who are going to study computers, they're learning how to write programs with you no know, little punch cards, right? We, we talked about this back when we talked about women in STEM, too. And also about my grandfather. Exactly, yeah. Who went to war on a GI Bill after the Second World War and, and worked with some of these first computers. Right. And they would run these programs, write these programs down on paper tape, basically, right? So it's not long from there that they start figuring out how they can develop, they could mechanize the mechanics for games. Right. The same way. And a lot of it just came about either by accident or just for the hell of it, just for fun. Yeah, literally. It was like a couple of these computers where even though they were exclusive to the university, students could ha- have them you know, pretty much anytime they wanted and they could leave, even access them late at night. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So... That brings us to 1958. That's yeah. kind of where our story story of the digital realm takes takes place, right? Right. So, so the turn of the 50s to the 60s. Yeah. It, it, exactly. Right in that transitional period, you have physicist William Higginbotham, who invents what many consider to be the very first video game. Uh, and this is at Brookhaven National Laboratory in Upton, New York. Now, his game, which was later gained the, the name Tennis for Two, was very very simple. It was super simple. In fact, the controllers looked not like the thing that you would see in a Bond movie. It yeah. looked like the literally... It was a it, box with a switch on it. Yeah, it looked like a detonator that a Bond film would, would use yeah, exactly. to blow up something. And you had two of them, and yeah. one was labeled with a label maker right, and the other one was labeled left, and that was for the right side of the screen or the left side of the screen, and that's how you knew who player yeah. one or two And it was, was literally a switch and a button. That right. was all it was. But what made it different than its predecessors, and what you know, distinct gives it the distinction of the first video game was an oscilloscope. Right. Tell, was, tell our listeners what an oscilloscope is, because I didn't even I, I'd seen one before, but I didn't know that's what it was called. So tell tell us what an oscilloscope is. Well, normally it's it's just a, a small display that's designed to display various you know frequencies and, and what have you hooked up to electrical equipment. Uh, so you see them you know displaying heartbeats, for example, or right. displaying the you know uh, electrical frequencies that yeah. are coming off of you a usually see it in like a lot of 1960s spy movies <laughs> when they turn <laughs> it on and as they're trying to go through like radio frequencies you see like literally you see the sine wave uh visible on screen that is the display of an oscilloscope i mean the, the technical definition is and i'm just gonna read this verbatim so it's an electrical testing device used to measure the frequency of an electric signal over time makes sense Boom. yeah pretty darn simple right so what made this fun is that he kind of hacked it right he tweaked it 
a little bit in order for it to accept this incoming video signal and controlled it very specifically. And mind you, when we talk about hacking, this is actually where the term hacking came from. That's right. It was about computer engineers who were able to invent a way, a new way of something happening. And it was their, a hack was considered an act, uh, like a, a, like something very accomplishment. Yeah, exactly. If you had done something really, really clever with something that wasn't intended to do it the way you did it. And that's where the term hacker came from because they were like, these guys were hacking computers to, to do different things. In this case, it was to literally just to kill time. Yeah. And that's exactly what this was. It was a challenge that was designed by a bunch of the other folks in the lab who just wanted to see if it could be done. And so it did. And it was never invented to become this huge industrialized, big, you know, commercial thing that it became into. And, and certainly there were other people who I have no doubt who were doing things like this, but never recording them. Yeah. In fact, it was it was mer- merely uh, a diversion to entertain people who were visiting the lab for the afternoon. Yeah. And they had no idea what they had in it because they actually dismantled it. <laughs> exactly. And they're like, oh, we had no idea this could be. It would, did, yeah, know. it wouldn't be until years later that they reflected on this and said, oh, well, guess what? We actually kind of invented the first yeah, video yeah. game. No one, no one had thought that electronic gaming would have a, a market to it. It was just... And this makes sense because if you talk about, you know, the engineering mindset, you're, you know, the, the role of an engineer is is not to make money. The role is to solve a problem. Right. Right. So they came up with a solution to a fun problem, but they never thought of it in the mindset of this could change the world. Right. It's the goal of your boss as an engineer. Right. To position that to his boss. Exactly. To make money. Yeah. Right. So naturally, that just and <laughs> it makes me wonder how many other brilliant ideas have been just kind of like thrown away because they just didn't see the point in it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or they realized that point years later. Exactly. Interesting little fact about uh, about Willie uh, is he also worked on the first atomic bomb. Ah, just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, it's a bit much lighter than, yeah, uh, yeah. than that project, for sure. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. So let's go to 1961, because this is where we actually have somebody who decides that they are going to invent a video game. Right, right. We're talking about Noel Bushnell. No, no, no. We're no, talking no. about Steve Russell. Oh, Steve Russell, okay. So Steve Russell is a, a student at MIT, and he created what is oftentimes considered the first intentional video game, a this very is, this specific is, yeah. one. Well, not just that, but just that MIT is so critical here, because... It's critical to in three forms, to video gaming, to computer animation as well, and to just com- modern computers in general, because the the foundation for computerized graphics that are done in two-dimensional form here is, like, this is groundbreaking stuff, and it's technology that we see the blueprints of today. Right. You know? Um, the fact that you use a GUI, a graphic user interface, has its foundations in this, in the work that's being done at this point in time. Yeah. And we're, well, we're not quite there. A lot of those first steps were being yeah, these taken. Yeah, the, the, these are the seeds have been planted and they're taking root exactly. at this point. Yeah. And this is a, a totally interactive computer game that was uh, designed to run on a digital PDP-1, which was a mainframe computer, one of their, their mini or micro computers at the time, meaning it was about the size of a refrigerator as opposed <laughs> to the size of an entire room. If you guys ever watched this, the 60s Batman TV show, and you look at the bat computer in uh-huh. that TV yeah. show. That's what a microcomputer yeah. would have been like. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's huge. It's a piece of furniture, basically. And what was cool about this was, you know, obviously it had the attached display, but it also had a single just power on switch. Right. Right. Uh, it could be pretty easily programmed for the time. And uh, they programmed it to create this game called Space War. This is a big deal because this is what many people consider the first true video game. Yeah. Whereas Tennis for Two is the first electronic game. This is like the first, because we actually can see it, it's programmed specifically for that right. purpose. Not just for fun. This this was intentional. And it was a pretty simple game. I mean, it involves a spaceship and two flying saucers. And the idea is that you shoot down the flying saucers before they run into you and kill you. And Atari made millions off of this yeah. idea. Yeah. The same, this same concept with like Space Invaders and, you know, Galaga and so many more. But here's what's cool, uh, Galaga. Galaga? Offline. Oh, yeah, Galaga. Galaga. You <laughs> say potato, I say potato. <laughs> We're probably both saying it wrong. But uh, it's like, no, guys, it's Galaga. <laughs> <laughs> it's Gaelic. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, this is also an open source kind of game. It was the first time that people could kind of add on to it and play around with it and do other stuff with if it. If you knew how to program computers. Well, right. And, yes. and what it comes down to is that the, the creators of the P, PDP 1 were so impressed with the way that it was put together, that they made it a standard testing software to be included with every single one of them. So they went out to all these different universities and colleges around the United States, and they all had this game preloaded on it to turn it on, power it on, and make sure it works. 
uh, what is so cool is that the people who were in that in that you know environment to become part of the gaming industry had their first chance to really be exposed to it and inspired by it. And Space War would go on to produce all sorts of different clones. I mean, the description of what we're talking about is essentially, you know, space invaders and asteroids. But you know, the first steps for that. Awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. So, are you familiar with Ralph Bear? Does he have anything to do with aspirin? No. Spelled a little differently. <laughs> Spelled B-A-E-R, actually. Uh, he was a, a German-born Jew who escaped from the Second World War. Him and his family were actually able to evacuate and, and leave Germany uh, before things got particularly bad. And uh, he ended up joining the Second World War uh, in, in, in the Army. And it was there that he was actually introduced to te- uh, television technology for the very first time. Uh, and it was also after the war that he decided he was actually going to start working with kind of like a military contractor, uh, an electronics consulting firm out of New Hampshire called Sanders Associates. Now, this is very important because he had this concept, this idea, this patent that he eventually uh, had, had created, which was he wanted to create a device that you could hook up to any television. Because at this point, there were thousands of televisions in the United States. He wanted to hook it up to a television and create an interactive game right. that would show up on the screen. And if you think about it, that's really the best way to get it to the masses, right? Because you're taking a technology that is already in place, that people were already, that t- TVs at this point were already starting to make their way into every household yeah. in America. So that's how you have to capitalize it. Right. It's an add-on. It's a, You don't have to buy a, a whole totally different you know, piece of technology that includes the screen. You just buy the component that then connects to the television. Exactly. Now... Most people whose this very prospect had been floating around for a little while, I mean, people have thought of something like this before, thought it was mad, thought it would never work. It would just of course not. never catch on. They never do. But thankfully, Sanders and Associates gave him a team to work with, gave him some funding, and had him build a prototype called the Brown Box. Uh, this would eventually be picked up by a company uh, called Magnavox, which is a, a very famous television company back in the day. Uh, I don't... I mean, it was a back into the, up into the 1990s for sure yeah exactly so yeah you know that they're they're still you know around in some form or another but they don't really not they're not like a big television producer like you know panasonic is today but regardless uh he was able to get the brown box to run two interactive tv games kind of like a chase sort of game and a table tennis type game essentially the great grandfather to pong and the idea was okay well Sanders and Associates just doesn't have the kind of money to fund a big project like this. But we'll support you if you want to go out and shop around for someone else to work with to manufacture them. And that's why he started approaching places like RCA, who had terms that were not within his liking or Sanders and Associates liking, uh, but then eventually settled on Magnavox in order to start producing them. And it was in uh, 1972... Uh, that the the actual patent finally went through on April 25th. And the the title for the patent was a television gaming apparatus and method. And it would be about one month later that Magnavox's Odyssey, which was based off of this patent and the original brown box prototype, was first released in stores to buy. Uh, It was originally showcased at the Berlingame uh, California convention. There was an electronics convention that was going on there. Um, and it was released, it was actually shown there first, excuse me, and then released a little bit later that year. I mean, keep in mind, folks, this is also around the time where, I mean, we're talking about the early seventies at this point, correct? Are we still in the late sixties? So we're, we're in the early seventies. The whole thing took about five years to actually get off the ground. And this is a big deal because, and this is happening in the Silicon Valley because it's also in the Silicon Valley where microchips are being developed, right? And the idea that you can create technology you can actually basically make solid state systems here now that maybe i might be getting a little bit ahead ahead of ourselves here but it's very curious that this would that this system would be demoed in the silicon valley or in the bay area well yeah it was demoed there it was developed in new hampshire so this was developed on the east coast but the actual you know display of it you know presentation of it all happened in, in california yes that's not the to discredit your point though that's to say that we're, we're going to get to that part in a second yeah because there's another element that goes into that the, the whole silicon valley the foundation of silicon valley the, the whole boom of the tech industry has a huge part to do with the development of the video game uh and that's actually the team the other the other side of this that was going on at the same time uh and that's nolan bushnell right and and ted dabney now they were 
eventually going to become the co-founders of Atari. But before they were that, they had a, a much smaller company, and they were taking the, uh, the idea of Space War and cloning it and coming up with a cheaper version that could actually be sold in bars. And this was the first of the of the real digital arcade games. Right. Which were takes on other types of arcade games that were pretty sophisticated, like Periscope that was uh, released by Sega back before it was Sega Entertainment. It was Sega Corporation. And it was a you know partially mechanical, partially electric game where you looked through a simulated Periscope down at little ships that were cut out of cardboard at the end. And then you launched torpedoes that were lighted up by their in their path by little light diodes that were, you know, placed all around the, the the water area of this of this gaming machine. So those were kind of the the precursors to this, but now we went fully digital because the the portable com- or the, I shouldn't say the portable, but the the smaller computers at that time could finally fit in something like a like a um, arcade kiosk. Uh, and that's exactly what they did and it was a total failure. Uh, they created this this really great one called Computer Space. If only they had figured out, oh, maybe we should make it video poker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then, if only! <laughs> uh, com- computer space was almost exactly like Space Wars, or Space War. The, the problem was they overcomplicated the controls. They made it something that they, as electrical engineering students, would want to play. They didn't make it for something that someone who was walking into a bar half drunk and, you know, completely and totally stuffed with potato chips would, would be able to handle. Uh, and as such, it was pretty much a bust. But it was a very important bust because it laid that foundation for for the future. Um, they only sold about fifteen hundred of them, and a lot of the other ones that they had made, you know, were were repurposed later for different projects. But the idea was that they they had gotten off the ground. They had done a pretty good job of doing that. So that brings us to the next big thing that Bushnell and Dabney are going to do, and that's Atari. Right now, this is big. This is really big. This is the this is the the birth of the commercialized gaming industry, because up to this point, these past few years have just been some light experimentation. Nothing had really caught on in a feverish way. Right. But now that Atari had come into existence, that was all about to change. Do you know what the word Atari means? No, I actually don't. So most people confuse Atari for being a Japanese gaming company. Yeah, because it sounds very Japanese and it's right because form. the name is Japanese. But it was completely started right here in Sunnyvale, California. It was right here in the Bay Area, just a few miles away from where we're sitting. Huh. Uh, and they, the, the creators have no Japanese ancestry or anything, but they do have a love for a Japanese game called Go, which is very similar to chess in many regards. And one of the, like the equivalent check, you know, move, like you move and you move somebody into check like you would with chess, uh, the equivalent of that in Japanese is Atari. Oh, nice. So Bushnell's favorite game, he decides he's going to adopt his favorite thing to say in that game and become the, the name for their company. That's awesome. Super su- super awesome. That's a, that's a strong message you say, too, because it also means you're winning. Yeah, right? exactly. Check. I win. Yes. Uh, and he takes it under his, uh, under his decision to hire Al Alcorn. Greatest name ever. Alcorn is the man who was responsible for programming Pong. And Pong is what changed it all. Pong did change it all. So Pong, originally they were going to call it Ping Pong, but they, they couldn't get the rights to it, obviously, for, for, for obvious reasons, right? So they decided just to call it Pong based on the sound that it makes when it hits the little paddles, right? That Pong, Pong kind of sound. Uh, and Alcorn was told, actually, by Bushnell, a little white lie. He said, hey, we've got a contract with GE, and they've got a lot of pressure on us, and they want us to make something quickly. So this is kind of a test of your abilities. And I want you to create this game that is pretty much the same thing as the Magnavox Odyssey, which had its own tabletop tennis-type game. But I want you to make it better, and I want you to put sound in it. Can you do that? And he's like, uh, uh sure. sure. Why yeah. not? Absolutely. Never done anything like this before. Yeah. <laughs> no idea what he's, he's doing. He's thinking like an engineer. Exactly. He's like... You, you give me a problem. I have a solution. I don't know how it's going to work yet, but I'll figure yeah. it out. Three days later, he comes back and says, I think I got what you want. Wow. Those uh, were probably three days where he didn't sleep. Yeah. Well, he had done a pretty good job. There was a couple other additions that the other team members added in after that, that first initial put together. But he'd almost got it exactly the way they wanted it to. And, and thus, uh, Pong was born. And what was cool and what differentiated it from some of the others out there is it was meant to be a two-player game. 
right? You had to have two people to make it work. You had two joystick controllers and you bounce the ball back and forth. If you don't know what Pong is, ladies and gentlemen, who are listening to this podcast, I am sorry, but I have no hope for you. It is the most basic video game. And yeah. in fact, it's so basic that you can now, they teach they teach you how to build the Pong game right. in computer science courses. Right. So I'm not I'm not going to go into any further description of Pong. Just you Google it. You should know what it is. If, if you, you don't, stop and go find out. Because I, I'm I, Actually, I bet if you Google it, Google will even have like a... A version of Pong you can play on Google. I, I, I'm i almost certain it's like a Google Doodle somewhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm yeah. almost 100% sure it is. So this was in 1972, to lay, lay, lay some context to this. It would take three years before they actually got it to a place where they were going to able, be able to market it. And just like the original Macintosh, it was Sears who helped out in a really big way. It was Sears who actually provided the initial funding and finances to produce the, the 150,000 units that they decided to make of Pong. In exchange for them being able to sell it exclusively in their stores? Well, not only that, they actually slapped their names on it. So when you bought the original Pong, it had Sears written on it and not Atari. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, they had to make some... So it was branded completely for it, that company. It, it, yeah. It was branded with the Sears Telegames logo and was sold exclusively through them. Oh, that's actually kind of crappy. But hey, look what it did. It, it got Atari off the ground. And later when they would re-release Pong through all of its different you know, versions, it would have Atari written on it. But those the first for, first few rounds were, were partnered exclusively Man, that's with fair. Sears. They needed a, a, a guiding hand. So Now at the same time, the first computer game, officially released computer game was put out called Gunfight. And it was uh, the first game to actually use a microprocessor instead of using these hardware solid-state circuits, right? And that was the big, big change that was going to need to happen. Because as awesome as Pong and as awesome as Odyssey was, they had a huge flaw. That's all they played. Yeah. You bought Pong, you played Pong. There was nothing else. It's true. So as you get into the solid-state... I, I mean, I don't want to say a revolution, but as you get into the, the, the advent of solid-state technology being developed... And you're talking about basically microprocessors and chips that can hold memory, right? So you're able to develop games, multiple games, that can be stored onto the memory inside of those Correct. those circuit boards. Um, and you now give options to the players. Right. And even Odyssey did launch with additional games that you could play. Pong was very exclusive. You only played Pong and that was it. But Pong was also a heck of a lot cheaper. So no wonder it was going to be such a huge success. So that's what really got it into people's room, you know, living rooms and in front of their televisions and dorm rooms and all around the United States, all around the world. Uh, everyone else would kind of be playing catch up to Atari for, for you know, a couple of years. Uh, that was until just about a year later. So it was 1976. Uh, Coleco, uh, Coleco released their very first uh, Telstar game system. So the Telstar game systems, they were very much like the the uh, the Odyssey. They were pretty singular. They all had some variation on the kind of controller that they used, which was more of a wired kind of remote than it was like a game pad or a joystick kind of apparatus, right? The game pad wouldn't come out until a little bit later. Um, but one very important development was with Fairfield Camera and Instruments. Now, they de debuted the, the VES uh, or the Video Entertainment System, and it was not very popular. But what it had as a big uh, revolutionary kind of feature was that it, it was sold with cartridge games. So you could switch out different games and you could share them with friends or family members, right? And you could also buy them after market. Right. And that was huge. And they, they were about the same size and shape as an 8-track, so they almost kind of looked like something people yeah, were I already mean, using. That's a convention that we still use today. Right. Right. Though we're actually moving more into download, downloadable content now more than anything, but... Yeah, that same convention, even though the, the type has changed, whether it's been a disc or a cartridge, like, that, exactly. You didn't have to worry about the restrictions of how much memory right. your board could hold. Exactly. So now, in 1977, Atari's like, well, this is the way to go. This is the way of the future. They were developing cartridge-based games even before, you know, the the uh, what would later be called Channel F, or the uh, video entertainment system was released. So... 1977 saw the one of the biggest moments, and that is Atari 2600. I had an Atari 2600. <laughs> of course you did. It was awesome. It was super outdated when I had it. I mean, it was already, you know... Well, so was it your dad's, and then your dad gave it to you? or did My you... dad. 
I don't know. Think about who you're talking about for the moment. My father has always been on the opinion that rock and roll music and video games will rot your brain. Uh, he's, he's very staunchly stuck in the 1950s and I don't think he's ever going to get out of that. Okay. Uh, so no, it was actually my cousins. So it was my cousins. And, um, when his grandfather passed away, uh, we went to their house and they had all this old stuff they weren't using anymore. And by that time it was like 13, 14 years old. But it's the novelty. Yeah, exactly. It It didn't matter. And I was super poor, so I didn't have video games. And so even though I was playing like a 14 year old Atari 2600, I didn't care. It was awesome. Uh, and that's, something that we had. And I was not alone in that. Everybody thought it was awesome. Uh, at the time that it retailed, however, it was $249.1977. So it wasn't cheap, but it did be the very first to come bundled with a cartridge game, which I thought was cool. All the other ones obviously had a game already pre-programmed into them. That's what they were. But this had its own game bundled in called Combat. And it's probably one of the best games that you can play for the Atari 2600. Pretty simple in concept. You had two modes. You had tank mode and you had fighter plane mode. You had two players and they had these little simple 8-bit sprites that represented, you know, the latter, right? And you would use those to fight with each other. But hey, that was the pinnacle of gaming at the time. Nobody ever thought that, you know, it would get too much better than that, too much faster. But thankfully, the video game industry wanted to continue to evolve. And this was at a time when arcades were still the thing. You go to an arcade right now, what do you generally see? Well, now you see video games. Yeah, but what do you see, though? What, how old are the video games normally? That's tough, because it's been a little while since I've been in, in an arcade, but I would say you see a whole gamut. You see things that are brand new, but you also see things that are sometimes 20, 25 years old. Yeah, you, you see stuff from every different era, because people don't really make money off of arcade games anymore. People right. don't want to throw quarters into something to pay, or these days you usually slide like a little card with a magnetic strip on it that you get at the front desk right, right. you load it up with credits like a David or whatever Busters, crap. Yeah. exactly yeah. yeah and people don't want to do that people want to play at home so when you go out to these places nowadays you find this mixture of mostly old stuff but back in the day you know 1978 the arcade was the place to be that's where you saw yeah. the latest and greatest and i mean the arcade in this case i mean that was kind of a staple for pushing video game technology forward for probably at 20 years or so. Yeah. Like it when it really probably didn't change until you get to very very economical, you know, a game systems. Now the funny thing is that if you try to get an Xbox 1 today, it costs you 2-300, but with the general wealth of America having increased substantially at that point, that's not as big of an expenditure, right, as it was back in the 70s. Yeah. So, yeah, but here's the thing. You you played at home, you sacrificed the graphics of the game. Right. Because you played at home. So you went to the arcade and you forked some money over in the arcade because you wanted to play the latest and greatest. That whole dynamic uh, change now has happened. That, that shift has all happened. And we can thank a huge game for this. 1978, Space Invaders, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, indeed. Space Invaders was a huge step forward. Tamahiro Nishikado, who was the inventor of uh, Space Invaders, originally was involved with uh, w- with the company who, who who puts this out with that that game I was talking about earlier, Gun Gunfighters, right? right? Which was super violent for the time, extremely violent. And he decides he doesn't want to do violent this time. If he does violent, he wants to do it differently. He doesn't want you know people killing people. So instead, he creates a alien invasion type scenario where you have to fend off against the little floating aliens that are above you. And what made this really different was that it was a really emotional experience, right? So you were you were actually, you know, playing in an arcade surrounded by people. The pressure was already on by doing that. But in addition to that, the music started to get more intense as the alien fleet starts to descend on you more and more. So as you're losing, the the sound starts to increase uh, in its frequency. And as such, you end up, you know, start to sweat and perspire and it causes this real emotional effect. And that's what he wanted. He wanted a video game that create an emotion. And that's super critical. It's super critical because Japan and its whole video game industry these days is really based around that concept. The idea of creating an experience, more often than not, an emotional experience. So we really have to thank him for setting that in motion and raising the bar because with that, all these other arcade games would really try to to step it up a little bit, not just in their graphic presentation, but also what they were trying to trying to do with sound uh, and with music. Now, you might be familiar with a couple of very famous former Atari employees. Uh, they actually created a game called Breakout 
that was released in arcades and also on the Atari game console. Okay. What were they? They went on to create a rather popular company out of their garage. Oh, are you talking about Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. That's right. I forgot they worked for Atari. So Wozniak was the principal designer and Steve Jobs was his consultant on the project for Breakout. They worked for Atari and decided they were going to leave Atari and actually start their own company, which would later become Apple Computers. Now, they reapproached Bushnell and they said, if you invest $50,000 in Apple, we'll give you a one third share of the company. And he said, no, of course. And he said, no. He said, are you guys insane? You guys are stupid. You think you're really going to sell personal computers out of your own garage and people are going to buy them? Video games are what people want to buy right now, not computers. Not realizing that you could also put games on the computers, which is a huge selling point. I mean, that's very, unfortunately, for a guy who had this vision for this company, it's kind of narrow-minded if you think about it. No, to, to his point... It's true. They didn't succeed selling it out of their garage. They actually had to set up a deal with a distributor through an electronics store to actually get the Apple ones sold. Yeah, but with so, that initial money they could have gotten from him, they, they could have done that before. He, he, they could. He, he could have been heavily invested in Apple and made a lot more money than he ever did at Atari. He was just, he was hyper-focused on the vision of video yeah. games. But yes. so be it. Yes. Uh, it's also interesting to note that Atari almost entered into the handheld uh, console era before anybody else and they they had a code named handheld capable of displaying holographic images it was called cosmos but it never got off the ground it was never produced but all the original prototypes and patents were were created i don't know if any of them survive uh but i thought that was kind of cool hmm. also asteroids we've all played asteroids right of course very first game to allow you to have your high scores saved so now here was the competitive feature, right? You could put three initials, first name, middle name, last name, and you could go to the arcade and you could brag about having you know, a high what, score. what you had accomplished. Exactly. Absolutely. And they, of course, they reverse engineered that back into Space Invaders and a bunch of the other classic of course, But games. in those first few to go out, by few, I mean the 70,000 arcade cabinets that were sold of asteroids uh, around the United States. Yeah. I remember, it's funny you bring this up because um, I didn't know this at the time, but around 95 or so somebody released a, a freeware uh, mac clone of space invaders called space junkie uh-huh and yeah. it was and it was literally the same levels just better graphics and yeah i played it it's awesome yeah, it was a great game i spent hours playing that game yeah there have been so many clones of both asteroids and like uh, geometry wars yeah is essentially asteroids and if right? you think about it space invaders is just a more complex clone of space war yeah, exactly. They're yeah. all just kind of like riffing off each other, right? And doing right. out trying to outdo each other. And this is long before patent wars really existed. I mean, there was certainly a lot of dispute between, um, in particular, in between Bear and uh, Bushnell. Uh, there was some legal going ons with all of that. Some pretty some pretty high profile stuff because remember it was the Odyssey that had that ping pong game first. It just so happened that Pong did it better and ended up making more money off of it. So there was there was some heat going back and forth between that. Uh, and, and not to make a light of that, we just don't have a whole lot of time to go into details around it. But, you know, there was that first kind of flicker of that that you see more of, of these days when it comes to, you know, well, how dare you take this? This is our feature. No, this is our feature. Well, this is our game. No, this is too much like our game. You, you didn't see nearly as much of that back in the day. Right. It was probably more about, well, we they can take that IP, but we can, we can outsell them with features and we cannot sell them with a new capability. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So 1980s now, right. So we've progressed through that, that dawn of the gaming industry. Now we're in what's called the golden age. And this (laughs) is a time when arcades were exploding in a way that, you know, they never have been able to to gather in success since then. Uh, And this is when the second generation of actual game consoles were becoming very popular. Because, you know, Atari 2600 had been on the market for a couple of years now and pretty much the undisputed champion. Everyone else was just trying to keep up. And there was a whole bunch of other new game companies that were coming out with their own, you know, kind of one-off type video game systems. But nothing could match to the popularity and to the game catalog that the Atari 2600 was, was gathering. So even though um, the Mattel's Intellivision would come out, you know, around that same time, 
it was the very first actual competitor 20, to the 2600, to the Atari 2600. And it was way more superior in terms of its graphics, but it also had a higher price tag with it. So $299, where by this time the Atari 2600 had gone down in price. So people usually pick it up for about $100 cheaper. And that was a big deciding factor, even though the graphics of Mattel's Intellivision and their marketing campaign was ridiculous. I mean, they were out there constantly on billboards, in you know movie theaters, on television. It was all over the place. And it was great. It was a, an awesome console, but it still could never really keep up with Atari. Uh, but Atari had a lot of problems. And eventually, uh, the company was sold off. And when it was sold, you know, remember, Atari in, in the beginning was in the Silicon Valley. And in an age where that whole corporate structure was not desired. You had people showing up to work whenever they wanted to, as long as they got their work done. They showed up in flip-flops and a tank top because it didn't really matter. So when it, when eventually Atari was sold off and Brunel stays on as the CEO, or Bushnell, excuse me, stays on as the CEO, uh, he started to not really click with that new leadership. Of course not. And it really laid the foundations eventually for his exit, but also for the whole crumbling of the company. Atari would not be able to recover from the 1980s, and particularly the big crash uh, of 1983. Uh, a lot of Atari's employees were getting very, very upset. They were doing all this hard work. They were designing all these awesome games, and they weren't seeing the money. They were being treated like a second-class workforce, right? They were just there to do the labor and not actually reap any of the benefits. Right. So a whole bunch of them decided they were going to leave, and they became the very first third-party video game vendor ever, Activision. Oh, nice. Activision's still around today. They are still around today. And still so this is games. big because you have a company who is using the same platform, but they're developing their own games under their own terms. And no one had ever done that before. Everyone built games for their own system. Nobody had ever built games that could go to other systems. So obviously Activision, because they were all former, former Atari, Atari employees, were building games for the Atari 2600. Yeah. But it didn't matter. Now they were actually making the money they wanted to make. Um, Atari also did something else very interesting at this time. They built Battlezone. And this was the first 3D game ever created using vectored graphics. And it was set in a virtual battlefield. And it was so impressive that the United States government contacted Atari bought the rights to the game, enhanced it, and actually used it as the training uh, foundation for what would later become the Bradley Armored Vehicle. Wow. So it never saw the light of day outside of No, the it did. It did. Atari okay. released it. But okay. what the United States government did, is, or Army did, is took, take it, enhance it, they bought the rights to it, enhanced it, and used it as a, uh, as a training tool for those who would be trained in the upcoming Bradley. Huh. That's How crazy fascinating. is that? That's fascinating. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Now, what if I say the word Puckman? What does that mean to you? Puckman. It harkens back to pretty clo to, close to a turning point in the video game industry. I can't say who made, made Puckman, but he was a character. Very big character. You can't say? I want to say it was Nintendo, but I could be no. wrong. Namco. Namco. Okay. And Puckman was huge. Puckman was a Japanese, obviously from Namco, the Japanese company. Uh, it was a Japanese character. And Namco executives were trying to figure out, well, what new game can we make? How can we market it to people? And what do people in Japan, particularly young people in Japan, love to do right now? And they went out and tried to decide by having a pizza. And they took a slice out of the pizza. And they said this right here. And thus was born, as it would later be known in the United States, Pac-Man. So, what's Puck-Man do, or Pac-Man do? He eats. He eats. He eats, and he escapes from ghosts. And everything's <laughs> colorful. And how is that not Japan? <laughs> right? It's true. That's totally Japan. It's true. That's totally Japan, summed up uh, Japanese youth in the 1980s. That's exactly what that is. It's, it's color, it's eating, it's fun, it's ghosts, it's, it's fruit. It's totally nonsensical, but it's, it's adorable. <laughs> yeah. is what it is. And the word adorable is actually a very strong word in Japan. They use it a lot to describe video game characters, anime, manga. They they do this because it's it's an important word to them. 
in America, it has a little bit of a different feeling behind it. And it more often got translated kind of as childish. Right. Right. But that's okay, because the perception around video games in the United States at that time was it was childish. It was an endeavor of children. So it was okay. And Pac-Man, because they figured that Puckman, spelled P-U-C-K, was, if you got a Sharpie, and you just so happen to adjust that P in a slight way. It could go very yeah. badly. Yeah, you know, you, 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 listeners, you hear, you hear where I'm going with this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. let's so, just say it. F*** man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But, you know, Pac-Man, um, it was a little easier for... Uh, <laughs> to be digested and it ended up selling 300,000 arcade units wow that's i mean those are arcade units yeah my god and of course this is also right when they realize okay not only can we market it to the arcade crowd they're going to try their hand again and market to the uh the adult crowd and they make the cocktail ver- ta- table table right. version of there pac-man and those still exist today yeah it's crazy. Yeah. Pac-Man is all over the place. He's an upcoming star in a new movie that's being created with Adam Sandler. Right, with pixels, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and they actually have the creator of Pac-Man in that in that movie. It's it's. Oh, is that really him? I yeah. thought it was just an actor. No, that's... I'm pretty sure that's him. Oh, I, that's... I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty okay. sure it's him. If I'm mistaken, well, so be it. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Pac-Man wasn't the only big game. Defender was another huge one. Yep. And this was a game that incorporated a whole concept of a virtual world. So beyond what you just saw on the screen in front of you, there were other things happening around you. And so you had a radar telling you what those other things were and kind of encouraging you and directing you to where to go. And while that doesn't sound like a very big innovation, especially in these days with, you know, open world games and things like, you know, MMOs, it is still a pretty big, you know, milestone, a big, big step. Eight, 1981 is the day, the year that Electronic Games was created. Uh, and that was the, the very first video game magazine. So that would lay the foundation for all future video game magazines. Sure. But yet we still haven't reached a major turning point yet. Cause yet, yes, we, we've talked about Atari. We've talked about Pac-Man, but there's still another major video game character who would change it all, who we haven't talked about yet. We're so talking about, what, what are you hiding from me? We're man? talking about Sean Kong. No, Sean. sorry. Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong. This 1981. Because who made Donkey Kong? Nintendo! Nintendo, right? And everyone's like, well, yeah, of course Nintendo made Donkey Kong, duh. However, at this point, Nintendo was not in the video game business. Nope. They were a card game company and had been one for, for years, since the 1940s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you know, they started with that. They started with small plastic toys. They actually had been a video game company since the late 70s, but not in a big way. They were They've producing, been developing, yeah. Yeah, they were producing things that were similar to the Odyssey, those one-off little video games, and they were sold exclusively only in Japan. Right. So as an American namesake, they didn't exist as a video game company. They just weren't there. And that's what I mean. Yeah. Because to the American gamer... I mean, maybe if you were a really, really, like, hardcore, like, card gamer, you knew the Nintendo brand, but you probably didn't, you never heard of them before. Right. So, we we owe a lot to Donkey Kong's development, right? What is interesting is that uh, Miyamoto, who was the inventor of Donkey Kong, was not really a programmer, but he was an artist, and he was a storyteller, and he was obsessed with things like anime and manga, and he loved to craft a story. And it's no surprise then that when Donkey Kong came on the scene, it looked like it did. It had these vibrant colors and these characters who were full of personality. And Donkey Kong, of course, is the antagonist in this. Who's the protagonist in Donkey Kong? Well, sir, I feel like if we're going to mention his name, we have to draw a line in history. Everything before this man is BM. <laughs> everything, Bell movement? Yeah, everything after them <laughs> is AM. Because we're talking about none other than Isamiya Mario. Yeah. Or Plumber Man. Or Plumber Man. Yes. <laughs> but he's had a few different names. But he but he was the he was the iconic template for what would eventually become exactly. Mar- Mario from Super Mario Brothers. He was also known as Jump Man. Yes. More commonly known as Jump Man before he ended up as Mario. He was also sometimes referred to as Plumber Man, but mostly Jump Man. And the idea behind him was, well, he could jump and that was pretty important. And he was a man. <laughs> and he was a man. Um, but you got to remember that the iconic appearance of Mario was actually kind of accidental. They were working with what they had available to them at the time. And the technology for a sprite that was that small 
didn't really give them a lot of room to play with. So the fact that Mario doesn't have a mouth, but rather a mustache was totally intentional because creating mouths was really difficult to do. To animate was, was a lot, yeah. Yeah, but creating a bushy mustache actually made it look a lot better. Making hair and making the hair look realistic was difficult. So instead they gave him a hat. So all these iconic features of Mario were done by necessity. But they ended up producing this yeah. famous little Italian plumber that we all know and love. I do think it is incredibly worth noting, and we'll probably mention it again next episode, that when they did eventually get to the point where they needed to give Mario a voice, they had to turn really not much further than the place where they were, where all the innovation was happening. Because the man who plays and has been the voice of Mario for years, Charles Martinet, was born in San Jose, California. Ladies and gentlemen, a local hero local hero and he has been the voice of mario and wario for for pretty much forever and he lives in san francisco to this day that's awesome isn't it awesome we Long can claim live mario we can claim mario's from the bay area <laughs> mario's from the bay area ladies well kind of mario's voice is from the bay area he's also the voice of luigi that goes <laughs> but luigi's always got the short end of the stick right or, so or the plunger in this but the plunger in this case yeah. indeed yeah cool well you know i think that's a good place to stop for now because we're going to get back to this topic next time. As we said, we have reached to the end of the ba- the BM area. Oh, and now we're going we to the call- It's like so disrespectful to Mario. We got to figure out a different name for that. Uh, we'll work on it. Uh, uh, we'll see if we say anti-Mario. Everyone's like, well, that's not Mario. But that's... Before Mario, we just want to say it. We, we okay, have reached the end. Mario. We have reached the end of before Mario. All right. Now we are talking about... The age of Mario. Okay, I'm, I'm 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 happy with that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. It's done. Listeners, I hope you agree. Uh, let's get to feedback, shall we? Okie dokie. This week in listener feedback. Okay. Uh, we have one piece of feedback we want to share this time from email, uh, and his name is uh, or or she. Uh, I'm going to say it's a he because he mentions being a monk uh, from Sphere and in Bangkok actually. And uh, he thought that the Thailand law was funny. Uh, we would talk to, he had listened to our That's a Law episode um, from probably, I think, the first year. I think we it was were, season one. Yeah. I think that was like our third episode, if I'm not mistaken. A little later, yeah. That yeah. was one of them. Something like that. May have been our fourth or fifth. But anyway. Or sixth or seventh. Yeah. Or now I'm thinking about maybe eight or ninth. Sorry, go ahead. No, okay. <laughs> so uh, he just thought it was funny because we had mentioned that in Thailand it was illegal to not wear underwear, it was illegal to go commando. And he mentions that monks in Thailand go commando every single day. He thinks he's, no, he has been a monk for a day, and he thinks it's funny because he's now breaking local law. So we appreciate that. Thank you very much. I hope the Thai government does not break your door down. But so, hey, we're in Thailand we're in now. Thailand we now. reached Bangkok. Woohoo! We have been taken to a brave new height. I don't think that's actually an expression. That's okay. We'll let it go. I think you meant brave new world, but brave that's new okay. World. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with it. I think I meant to say Such Great Height or Brave New World, and I mixed the two together, and it didn't didn't really work, did it? We'll have to do a segment sometime. Brian Moriarty mixes phrases. Mixing metaphors. <laughs> Coming to you soon, Nerdonomy. <laughs> and our listeners. Uh, yeah, we have one more email, but we want to um, we want to save that for, for next time. Um, we did have a great, a really great email from uh, Elizabeth, uh, who... She actually, it's mostly for, for Nerds on Film, but we just want to say thank you. It's a long one. We'll probably get to that when we do the next recording of Nerds on Film. So we just wanted to give you a heads up now because that one probably won't drop until August. Okay, so, so a little acknowledgement. So we just want to acknowledge you that you listened, that we, we got it. We love it. We'll read it. But, but you're going to have your, to wait. Keep We're your making you wait. For it. Exactly. Although um, you already wrote it, so you know what it sounds like. But anyhow. Exactly. Uh, but that's kind of it. And you know what, guys? I just want to say a thank you to all of the listeners who have engaged with us over our social media, uh, particularly Jess, uh, one of them who favorites are like almost everything we tweet and we, we love her for that, um, over Twitter and Facebook. And of course, now even our Instagram accounts, when you can get to those by just, you know, searching us on the interwebs, just look for Nerdonomy. I guarantee you will find us. Um, and you can also just go to our website, nerdonomy.com and hit the talk to us link and give us feedback directly through the feedback form on our website. You know what, Eric? Tell us, what else can they do when they go to Neuronomy.com? Well, there's a lot of things, but if you just so happen to find yourself in front of that donate button, given one nice little click and then maybe entering some, you know, ones and zeros and other zeros, and then another click will actually help us out a lot. Yeah, and you can uh, give us any amount you want. Yeah. We have a couple of people who have uh, 
opted to give us a subscription. We have one guy giving us eight bucks a month, one guy giving us two bucks a month. Something so, as simple as that. Look at that. Any amount you can afford is awesome. But or you know, if you want to you know give yourself a little something too, you can uh, support us through our Amazon affiliate links that are available on our blog posts and older episodes, or even through our Audible affiliate by going to audibletrial.com forward slash nerdonomy or clicking the Audible button on the right-hand side of the desktop version of our website. Oh, Either way, so many ways yes, indeed. to do the supporting. And full full disclosure, when you do that, we will get a small commission if you sign up for that free trial. Right. So, Which is kind of the point. Yeah, but you know what's more important? Money is nice, but, you know, it's a necessary evil. Yeah. Right? It's the root of all evil, actually. Oh. What's more important? Listening to us. Listening to and us. And sharing us with others. Spreading the word of nerd. Don't just listen. Don't just subscribe. That's all good and Fine. Tell somebody about it. Send the link. Share it. Imagine you just got your first Atari 2600 and you want to share your, your cartridges and games with other 2600 owners. You can do the same thing with Nerdonomy. I want to be the, I want to start a new c- cultural trend. I want there to be a podcasting party where people gather around, get some drinks, get some chips, and they listen to us. Or listen to some other podcast. Not necessarily us, but we should be part of the party too. Why not? We're fun. We Alright, let's do it. <laughs> let's We're doing it right now. Hashtag podcast party, folks. Let's make this happen. All right. You know what, nerds? It is that time. So until we meet again, stay nerdy and tune into our next exciting conclusion to the history of video games. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. I thought you said this would be fine. I thought you said if we, we went ahead it and... It was fine. I slipped the guy 20 bucks. Yeah, I know, but they don't know who we are. And... Uh-oh. All right. Sean Kong's over there with security. We gotta get going.